Hi, welcome back to Sporting Lives episode 11. This time we're on to part two of a three-parter. And uh, why wouldn't we give three parts to a stellar racing guest in Richard Pittman, a man who rode over 470 winners during his career. But let's jump back in to part two. And we're going to start with the Grand National. Um, uh, so Grand National, you mentioned that you, you lived for the National and Pendle, yeah, would have been a great sight to see him. But I, you, you can understand why Fred didn't want to risk him. And you look what happened a few seasons later to, to Alverton, of course, ha- having won the Gold Cup and that, that tragedy. Let's go back there to, to those, those two days in particular that stand out. And first of all, the 69 National on Steel Bridge, because uh, this was... Probably, um, I'm thinking you got up that morning and thought, well, I'm great, I've got a Grand National ride. And that's probably about as far as it went. Not I'm going to be in the, yes. in the chance of winning. Yes, he was my second ride. I'd ridden in the 67, the Foynaven race, and fallen, I might have fallen off, I can't remember, at the third. Um, and it's a horrible feeling to be out of the race so early. You just say, well, I said, stop, boys, come back, let's try again. Uh, sorry, it doesn't happen that way. I mean, what a race to... That was the Foynaven. But so I didn't ride in 68. 69, I was now riding schooling for lots of other people, the Cundles, and this fairly new female trainer. There weren't many trainers female in, in 69. And I rode four in 68. Um, Barbara Lockhart-Smith, and she trained near Aylesbury. And I used to go every Sunday and ride schooling for her and she's Milton Keynes was being built at the time so plenty of builders getting well lots of manga and um, the idea was she's small trainer wanted to expand she would invite local people who were doing well there and we'd school up over three or six fences and we'd all go back to the farmhouse open Bollinger you know bingo another horse sold so uh, it happened with this one. There was a guy called Jimmy Drabble and uh, hadn't had a horse before. And he said, oh, I, I, I want a Grand National horse. Oh, we can find you one, she said. So <laughs> sure enough, she bought Steelbridge, who'd run in it a couple of times before, slowly, but got round, you know. And Jimmy backed it at t- 250 to one and kept backing it down, you know, because Barbara was full of confidence. Right. And uh, there was a bit in the Sporting Live saying, uh, Accumulating gamble on steel bridge, you know. I think that's one of my best rides that day. Um, he had a big fluffy nose band. I went round the inner. Fred Winter always gave me the orders, whoever I rode for, you know, round the inner. So much saving ground. You know, it's, it could be worth 20 lengths, especially if you jump the canal turn on that angle. You can make three lengths there. And you do it twice, six lengths. You can make so much ground. Anyway, so the footage of him, I'm on the inner, third or fourth, always up there, and my, the second circuit, right up against the camera car, and he jumped out of his skin coming up from Canal Turner. It's the most gorgeous pictures. And uh, Jeff King was on Rondetto, a very good horse, and Jeff was our god. He was the prophet. He's a tough man, but ride, you know, professional's professional. And uh, he was banging the mix. And Eddie Hardy, I was never going to beat him on Highland Wedding. He was going better. I'd beaten 12 lengths in the end. But going to the last, I'm overtaken by Rondetto. And I boot mine up the, up the run in and, and get up to be second. Now, Jeff King is 
his fuse is easily lit. Even at Lord Oates's memorial, we're sitting in a pew quietly waiting. And I know how to wind him up. You know, I, I said, Jeff, um, I really enjoyed outriding you at Aintree. <laughs> Goes through the ceiling. <laughs> and everyone listening as he berates me. Um, but it, it was so pleasing. And, and Jimmy Drabble, who'd back the horse, had a, a lovely touch. He got his prize money, which wouldn't have been much in those, but his lovely touch of each way from 250 down to 33s or whatever it was. A good, you know, a good story. But that night we watched the race in the Adelphi, you know, there was a big party in the Adelphi, and, and the race was being replayed by the BBC. And uh, we got to the slightest fence, it, it, the smallest foyer fence, and he pecked a bit on landing. And she jumped up and whacked me with her serviette and said, that's where you lost the so-and-so race. <laughs> oh my God, give me a break. <laughs> Had you ever visited the track before you, before you rode there? Um, I suppose ever... I led up, I, I think I led up something there and I can't yeah. remember what it was. I keep scratching my head. Um, but obviously I walked the course and, you know, Fred Winter, I walked with Fred Winter. And this is rather getting off your track a bit, I suppose, but um, Jimmy Drabble and his new wife, who was in stilettos that big, went to walk the course with us. It was a big posse, you know, photographers watching us and we, down the inner, you see. And his wife, Liz, came off the motor track, tarmac onto the course, immediately sunk in the ground. A heel broke. She had to be put back on the tarmac and the following on policemen took her off. But the tales of injuries and things that Fred was coming through, and what can happen, you get to the third, that great big open ditch, 40 horses all doing that in front of you. Jimmy Drabble, when we got to Beechers, was physically sick on the grass, you know, with, wow, this isn't, you know, and all my bets at <laughs> getting the horse down, not pretty safe, and he was sick, so... He didn't go any further. You know, he was taken off by a policeman, taken back to the stands. So it was it was a marvelous time. But anyway, things moved on from there. Amazing. I mean, you know, I sat at home. Um, it was a big day. It was Grand National Day in our house. The, the television was set aside, so you'd have been broadcasting at most of those. Obviously, riding in some of them. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm guessing most people wouldn't forget their first experience. At Aintree. I know mine was the 85 Grand National, the first time I actually ever physically got there in person. So I'm a teenager at this point, went with a couple of friends, and I had to go and stand by Beecher's Brook for my first Grand National because I just yes. was fascinated by this fence and how huge it was. Yes. I, don't, I don't think anybody who never actually witnessed that in the flesh could probably appreciate it. But standing at the bottom on the inside where you went yeah. over on Crisp, yeah unbelievable to, to feel to think that a horse yep. is going to pass over the top of that and yes twice your height probably by the yes. you know, land out somewhere over there yeah, fantastic yes. so i i forewent to watching the finish that year because i knew i was obviously never going to get to the winning post before horses and jockeys did uh, i did try i, I as soon yeah. as they'd gone the second time um i backed west tip that year and he fell just in front of me with dunwoody on or yeah off. And ran up the inside as I'm listening to Derek Thompson's racecourse commentary. I think it was Graham Good um, with Mr. Snugfit and yeah. Last Suspect. Um, it was just, a, you know, as you can see, I've got great recall on it because it was the first time and it was so special to go and see it. So to be able to ride over it like you did yeah. on Chris, oh. 
Oh, fantastic. But Jonathan, isn't it sad that people won't be able to get that same feeling as you did because they've leveled the ground out, uh, they filled the ditch in, and so therefore it's made the landing less of a drop. And I mean, in the days before me, you know, when the, the, the old Cavaliers rode very, very long, I mean, yeah. they would be back and their heads touching the horses. I've just um, lost you for a moment. It's gone. Oh, there we go. Uh, Is that a mic? Will you be able to... And we okay. just got to the bit where the, the jockey's heads were touching the horse's backside. Yeah. And then you right. So in the old days, old jockeys, way back, head touching the backside. But it was correct. Because of the drop and the exertion of jumping such a big fence, um, their noses would hit the ground. And, and, and you'd slip your reins to the buckle end and keep their head up. It really helped them stay on their feet if you kept their head up, you see, a bit. Um, and you, you got back in the saddle, but not as bad as that. As ballast, use your body as ballast to keep their bottom down. Because yeah. once their tail comes past their head, you are in trouble then. Um, so, of course, as, as people have got stylish and more stylish and, and, and better, I suppose, it's a split second thing, slipping the rein, going back to then grabbing yourself and going on. But Chris, there is a, a dip you'll have noticed on landing on the inside. There is a dip yeah. just about where they land. And, and Chris was so good, he went over the dip even, you know. Whereas in, I'll just go back slightly because it's relevant. In Steel Bridges Day, Tommy Carberry on Kilburn went even closer to the inner than I did on Steel Bridge and went into the hole and down he went. And a great photograph I've got of that because there's him going down, me gathering my reins, Highland Wedding next, and just behind us, largest life, Brigadier Andrew Parker Bowles, the first <laughs> husband of our next queen. Indeed. And there he was on the fossa. You know, it's a marvellous photograph. But with Chris... He was so exuberant and such a good jumper. He loved it from the, just from the word go. We had discussed tactics. He'd won the two mile champion chase by 20 lengths, 25 lengths. He's now in a four and a half mile race with joint top weight with a dual gold cup winner, Les Cargo, and the rest of them down on nothing. I mean, red rum, 10 stone five. And so therefore, two miler, a lot of weight, you hold him up, just play around at the back, keep his stamina. And Fred Winter said, quite rightly, that cannot work because he is so exuberant and so loves jumping. When he spots a fence, he, he quickened of his own volition. You didn't ask him to quicken, he quickened. He was quick over it, never up and over, quick over it, and was galloping before he hit the ground. And that's why he went so far clear. Everyone thought he was running away with the never was he running away. This is how he got clear. Plus the fact I went round the inner, Bill Schumacher was on the wide outside on Grey Sombrero. So he was making ground from everything he was doing. But it was such a great feeling. Um, had he been at the back, he would have jumped on something's some of the horse's back because he'd have been going forwards when they're going, oh, 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 you see. But such a fantastic feeling. And after I jumped the first, I thought, He'll be fine. This is great. He loves it. 
it is. I mean, there's no doubt about it in my mind. It is one of the great sporting, in British sporting moments uh, in the history of, of televised sport. Um, watching that race again, and I won't say I watch it, you know, on a weekly basis, but when it comes around to that time of year again, I'll yeah. tape out and watch yeah. it again. In fact, in the build-up to this, it was great to be able to pick up a few old YouTube videos of you on, on the Pendles <laughs> and, and co, and I watched this yeah. race again. I really do. One thing that stuck out for me, and I've heard you talk about this obviously many times. You must have gone through it thousands of times with people over the years, uh, and credit to you that you you continue to talk about it, I guess. But I remember reading a piece that you'd written, and you, this must have been in the early '80s. And the thing that sticks out was you were saying your breath is burning in your windpipe and it was a beautifully written piece at the time and that that, that really hit home as to the feeling that you will never get as a non-jockey yeah. as yeah. to what it's like riding in that race when yeah. not only is your horse at the end of his um, energy yeah. levels but you too are yeah. feeling it as a jockey when I, I guess so many people think you're just sitting on board and it's you get yeah. an armchair yeah. ride yeah but why why it was tiring is four and a half miles over 30 fences long way but I'm holding him all the time, you know, pulling him back, holding, come here, come here. And, and it, it saps your strength. And then by the time he had gone, we probably have to get to when he's gone. I mean, his, his energy had gone two out uh, to the winning post in a very long way. So pushing, scrubbing. And it, it, it literally, I, I wasn't making it up. You know, you're, you know, I'm a fit athlete, or I was, I hope, but it's still the gasping for each breath, as poor old Chris was gasping for breath, it did burn your windpipe. I mean, it, it's graphic, but very few people have ever picked up on that. You're, in fact, you're the only ones ever picked up on that point. It was just that that really did hit home as to what that whole experience was like. But prior to that, I mean, that, again, we, we know what the result was. Um, even though they were talking about the virtual Grand National rerunning it and bringing the winning post back a few yards, and that would be nice. <laughs> but actually, it, because he just lost so little, he lost nothing really in defeat apart from the first prize. It was just an extraordinary experience to see a horse carrying that much weight and yeah. uh, so yeah. exuberant, enjoying himself. You know, you have been part of one of the great experiences in British sporting history, and that must be yes. fantastic. Yes, but yeah, but Jonathan. Crisp, Fred Winter, Sir Chester Manifold, who bred him and owned him, and Chipper Chape, who looked after him, and all the punters deserved the black kangaroo to have won a national. He may not have got, <coughs> excuse me, the recognition he's got now, or the repeated, regurgitated stories, you know, but he deserved it. And I've said this a lot of times, and I know in my heart, I mean, people have criticized me for many things. A, making the running when that was our plan. Um, B, uh, for um, being an idiot, I suppose. Um, but I, I've lost my thread now. Why? Oh, yes, I know. What I did was a boyish mistake. I was so far clear all the way, and you've probably heard this story, but going to Beaches Brook, in those days, lots of people were, were all around the course. Now, health and safety, they're not allowed down there. But there was a public address, and I could hear Michael O'Hare, great Irish commentator, and over the public address, you see, because I could hear no horses. I was so far clear on the second circuit. 
And my fellow here was going, and crisp at 25, let's clear and coming out of the pack is red rum, but Fletcher's kicking him on. I thought, that'll do me, keep saving a bit, save a bit. Just before Foynaver, Nicholson, David Nicholson, the late, was sitting on his horse. He was always very grand, that's why we called him the Duke. Sitting on his horse with his arms folded, the horse picking grass. He'd fallen on the first circuit. And he was like an Indian, you know, in those old John Wayne films, sitting on top of the mountain watching the war. And he said, actually, you're 33 and a half lengths clear. Kick on and you'll win. And I thought to myself, no, kick on is not what I'm going to do. I've got to save every ounce. So when he jumped the second last, he went from still on the bridle and his legs in front of me were going forward, every good striding horse, big powerhouse of a horse, to starting to just go slight. They were coming into my eye line, going outwards, you see. And the petrol ran out, just like, I know it's an old adage, but the petrol ran out of the car, the air out of a prick balloon, the whole picture changed. Mm -hmm. And from the second last to the winning post in a very long way. And, but I'm still so far clear. And then when I jumped the last, okay, we've got this 494 running, yard running. I could hear red rum because it was firm ground. We broke the track record that stood for 40 years by 14 seconds. I could hear red rum coming. Drum drum as his hoofs on the, turf and he was a high blower that means when he exhaled and they breathe every stride people talk rubbish in sprints say jockeys say oh governor he went on one breath he never had a never had a breath they breathe every stride anyway so when he exhaled his nostrils used to flap which would make the noise of so i could hear drum 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 getting louder and louder it's like being when you're a kid in a nightmare and you're running away from something horrible and you're in treacle and you can't get away. It was agonizing. And that's where I lost the national and people are nice to me and say, oh no, you'd have been fine. I know, I rode him. I picked my stick up and I thought, I've got to wake him up. I've got to wake the old boy up. Even his ears, his floppy ears, but his ears had gone like that. <laughs> and I'm not a whip man and neither was Fred Winter, but I thought I've got to wake him up. But I picked my stick on my right hand hey, we want to go right-handed round the elbow. And it wasn't so much that, that I hit him. It was the fact I took one hand off the reins to do it. And I'm holding this big 17 2 hands horse together. And once I half let go, he fell away like that. Hmm. So, oh my, I, I, I can, it's vivid now. I had to stop riding, pull him over, go back. And I'm beaten three quarters of length. I lost... Uh, it, I think two lengths. The horse deserved to win. Yeah, he just just for two or three strides, he goes off left, doesn't yeah. he? And, and it's yeah. red, uh, Brian Fletcher on Red Rum's got, if you like, the racing line, hasn't he? He's got that pace. Yeah. He's just saved a bit of ground as well. Yeah. 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 Um, but but it was a t it was a two and a half strides that mattered, Jonathan. It changed the it changed the result. But Brian was a very clever man. By coming, he'd seen me faltering. He challenged very wide. You know, because if one horse has another one upside him, it G's them on. Even though Chris felt red run yards out from him, 10 yards out, he felt him and he, you know, he thought, oh, you know, I've got to, but he'd gone. The saying bottom of the barrel, you know, he was there.
Now, those might have come from Richard in just a couple of moments, just to mention that you can, of course, uh, subscribe to the channel. Just uh, look down in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen right now. And if you hover around with the mouse, you should get the option to subscribe here to YouTube. Uh, if you can't um, see the pictures, but you're listening on Podbean or on iTunes, then please also similarly subscribe. It just allows me to keep to continuing to produce this free content for you with some cracking sporting lives guests. And you can also follow me on Twitter and on Facebook on the same handle at Sporting Lives One. And send me an email for suggestions for future guests on Jonathan Deutsch at hotmail.com. Now, commercial break done. Let's get straight back into the podcast then with Richard Pittman. So, Red Rum's obviously the villain that day. And when you look back, even though I loved Red Rum and he was a, he was a great, yeah. a true great horse um, for what no, he did. No, I achieved. admire him. Uh, but did, admire did, him, Jonathan. Could, could you admire him during those next few years after that had happened? Oh, yeah. Or that, that comes yeah, yeah. I went from possible elation, but I, I mean, I wasn't elated at the running because I'm working so hard. But once I passed the run, I thought, oh, God, that was a great, you know. And then, oh, my God, I should have won and I've lost it. What a stupid person. To then, a minute later, before I came in off the track, I'm elated again. I had had the experience of a lifetime, a bit like a ski jumper, you know, in the Olympics and all these great things. The elation swept back into me because I had had a ride that money could not buy. I'd earned that ride. It was my ride. And to jump round there and laughed at those fences, I mean, Beaches, Brook, incredible. And the canal turn, because I was in front, I could come out and cut across the corner. It was, it was, it was so brilliant. I mean, like, I'm 78 now, and I, my memory is not great, but I remember every blade of grass in that race because it's imprinted in the old grey matter. Yeah, and, and, and why wouldn't you? I think we all would, you know, we all remember it um, as, if, <laughs> as if we were you, but we're, we're yeah. never going to be. Um, you know, able, but this is close as we get to ever to sharing that uh, experience. And, and again, thanks so much for for so much detail in that respect. So, just be interesting to to get your thoughts then on the following year um, on Red Rum's performance under top weight, because for me that looks like just about as good as it gets as a Grand National performance. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, what a hike to go from ten stone five to carrying twelve stone. You know, it was a huge. I just want to go back slightly, sorry, if I can, because it's pertinent. In, in Chris Red, Red Rum Chris year, Les Gargo, dual gold cup winner, 25 lengths back in third. Now, I know he did eventually beat Red Rum in the race, but that put a seal on that particular race. Ginger McCain, once I joined the BBC, Ginger asked me to ride the horse for the BBC, or we asked him, around entry, but not, not jumping. And... Um, I mean, he was still racing, you know, it was great of him to even risk me on him, you know. And, you know, a lot of viewers don't remember Ginger, but he was larger than life. He said non-politically correct things all the time, you know, and, and had a great folly, great man. He led me up onto the horse and he said, well, Pitters, he said, you've seen his ass. now you can look between his ears. <laughs> I mean, that is so Ginger, isn't it? Yeah. But... I rode quite a few Grand National winners. I rode Well To Do, who Graham Thorner won on, in the Well To Do Challenge Trophy at Toaster and, and won that on him. And he was a hard ride. And a harder ride, I rode Foy Naven. Oh, my golly. He was a hard off the bride push and shove. Yeah. 
you know. So I've ridden quite a lot of national winners, but without them being in the national. Yeah. Um, just a, a couple of other, well, one other I wanted to mention, because again, this one comes back from my childhood memories growing up watching racing, when there was the rivalry between Pendil and the Dickler. You'd have Spanish steps around, seemed to be in every race. Yeah. Money market, I seem to recall. Yeah. April, April 7th, maybe a few years later. Another one that came up quite a lot was trained by Fort Walwyn, and you did ride him to win the Hennessy, Charlie Patine, because he seemed to be a, a, a good horse, very good horse, but had jumping issues. I seem to recall my childhood memory saying he came to an open ditch anywhere and he seemed to disappear out of yeah. it. I'm glad you raised him because it lead me on to something else. Um, Charlie Pettine, like was third in the Gold Cup. He was always, you know, he's always bang up there. Barry Brogan was Fuchs jockey, and there was a big wall between the two yards, Winters and Warwin. And we all referred to each other as, oh, over the wall, I've had another treble, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, and Fred used to ride for Fuchs, Mandarin, and good horses. Um, the night before the Hennessy, Barry Brogan broke his, or the day before, broke his leg. So Fook rang Fred and said, Fred, that boy of yours, Pittman, can he, can he ride? Yeah, yeah, he's got, could, he, could he ride a Hennessy horse? Yeah, yeah, he's totally up to it. I mean, you're a boy, you know, even when you're 28 or 9 <laughs> or 32 or whatever. Anyway, the horse won, but he said to me in the paddock, you won't hold this horse. Sit in front, keep hold of his head. Uh, he, 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 he is quite brave. You won't hold him, so don't even try. So that's what we did. One circuit. We got to the grandstands. And as you know, that you, you then come to the gateway that leads back into the parade ring and the stables. <laughs> and he dropped the bridle and went off to the gateway. So I gave him a whack and said, get up, you know, another circuit to go. Well, it was like smacking your, although you're not allowed to smack your children, like smacking a child or a sport child in the supermarket, throwing themselves on the floor, you know. He went absolutely do lammy. And for the second circuit, every fen, I mean, he's really running away now because I've woken him up, you see. He's gone vividly across the course and then back the other way at the next end. He was horrible, but he was so far clear. Never saw another horse and won, I don't know, 20 lengths. But... Jeff King objected because I'd been, he said he put my horse, I think he was on one that I used to ride called Roman Holiday. Yep. He said he put me off, you know, put me off. I'm objecting to him. It's dangerous, you see. So they said, oh, this is a futile objection. Threw it, threw it out, you see, straight away. And in those days, Sir Piers Ben Goff was an amateur rider and he was also the Queen's representative, he, you know, big man, six foot four. And uh, he came in to placate Jeff King, you see, in the changing room. There's Jeff's colours off and he's swearing and sweating. And Piers went up there and he said, now, Jeff, old boy, you know, that was rather a silly thing to do. So Jeff burst out and said, you, you long streaker, so-and-so, you couldn't ride if you, if you were a foot shorter and a really lambasted, the senior student. So this was in front of everyone else. So Piers said, oh, I can't put up with this king. He was calling him Jeff before, you see. Now it's, I can't put up with this king. Come and, and took him into the tour room. They find him 250 quid for abuse. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, but sorry, do you know, I nearly missed the story here. Yeah, you might have to cut me off, but, but having ridden the Hennessy winner, Foop and Brogan Broken Leg, Foop let me ride his horses that week. And I might have had eight winners. I don't know, might have been five. I don't know, but we really did well from the number of rides they were all winning. 
come this next Saturday. He said, would you come up and ride schooling equipment? I said, yes, I'd, I'd love to. Because once you start schooling someone, you're in, you see. And Brogan was going to be out for some time, Brogan left. And we got in the Land Rover and the travelling head lab was given Fuchs' little Yorkshire Terrier, which had pink bows in it and a diamante collar and leads, you know. Nothing like you'd expect Fuchs Warwick to have, you know, because he was very grand, an army man. And he got in the back uh, with the dog, the travelling head lad. We went up and there was only one horse up there, you see. So he said, this is what I want you to school. By the way, uh, it's the one that broke Brogan's leg last week. He said, but I'm sure you'll be all right. He said, he's a bit of a maniac, but I'm sure you'll be all right. And he'd, 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 it was over hurdles he'd done the damage. Now we're jumping fences. He said, give him something to think about, you see. So Lamborn, three sets of seven in a row. I think I said it earlier. And tightly packed together. So he said, if the horse, go for the middle one. If the horse runs out, as he might, there's three either side. He's got to jump something, you know. So we got him. We got him. And Fuchs standing uphill by the second lot of fences. The horse jumped the first fence and went, like that, you see. And I went, come here. He said, no. And he's drifting uphill. And I thought, well, I've got another fence to jump there. And maybe one. And he's drifting and drifting and drifting. And I'm a stride away from Foot Warwick. And I'm going to run him over. He is going to be killed because we're hurtling. And his eyes, I can still remember, his eyes went <laughs> like that. And he's holding rags, the dog, on the lead, you see. And self-preservation made this horse just jink to the right, missing Fook, but going between him and the dog, and the lead got caught round the horse's leg, and the, the dog jumped the fence with me peeing and going, <laughs> and of course it unwound and he, the dog fell off. I jumped another fence, so I've jumped three fences. I am delighted, and I've trotted back like that. Well, he was puce in the face. He dragged me off with one hand and said, not only are you blind, you're mad. And you'll never ride for me again. He said, now you can walk home. Well, that was about three and a half miles. <laughs> and he, he took the poor little dog and patted it and gave the traveling head lad to the horse and never had another ride for him. That's brilliant. Um, let, let's, let's take you to a, a theoretical race then, if we can. We'll, we'll go to Cheltenham. It's good ground. It's Gold Cup trip, three miles, two and a half. Um, they're all in fine fettle. They couldn't be in better nick before the race starts. You've got a choice between Crisp, who can make the running that day, rather than when he did run in the Gold Cup, uh, Pendle, Lanzarotti, Bueller, Killiney, maybe. Um, those five, yeah. which one are you going to, who are you going to ride? Right. Who wins? Head and shoulders, head and shoulders, Pendle. I mean, we don't know about Kalini, but we can talk about him in a minute if you like. But, <clears throat> excuse me, head and shoulders pedal. He's beaten short head by the Dickler. He's running away the second time. He should have won half the track. Chris tried in the, in the Gold Cup and only finished fifth. And I think he sulked a bit that day because I held him up and he didn't like that. So if I'd let him blaze along, who knows? But no, Pendle was... Was, was better than Crisp. Crisp undoubtedly was better than Bueller and Lanzarotti, even though they both won champion hurdles. And Kalini, 
an unknown. I think he'd won nine. He won his first six anyway. And then he, I think he won nine, you know, before, including at the Cheltenham Festival in the, is it the RSA? I think yeah. now the you know, Novices Championship. And he was a great big horse. And he was, he had a wind problem, breathing problem. I, I apologize. I hate people saying a wind problem. Why the public know what a wind problem is? Respiratory problem, breathing problem. Anyway, he made a noise when he was galloping, but he was still winning, you see. And he won by, and you had to give him a boot at his fences. Very brave, as long as you, as you were brave, he was brave. So he, he won the, the RSA, which is a gold cup trial, although it very, doesn't often work because it, it, it bottoms them a bit, you know, as a novice. Anyway, that's only my own theory. So three weeks, was it three weeks? Yeah, three weeks after Cheltenham, he ran in an ordinary race, four or five runners at, at Ascot. Fred said, you've only got to pop round to win. But we've been easy on him since because we weren't going to run him again. So don't go blazing off and kick him in the belly. Just keep hold of his head and let him pop round, you see. And he went to the open ditch down the hill at Ascot in front. And I didn't give him a kick. I've got him right on the right stride. I've got to hold his head on the right stride. And he came up. And then put down again because he thought, oh, I haven't been asked, you see. And being an open ditch, he put down into the bottom of the fence, did a somersault, knocked me out. And I, I woke up in the, in the ambulance room on a little cot bed they used to have in those days. Didn't know where I was when they said. And, and I could remember him. I, I thought I could in my mind see him standing up. And, and, I, and he probably was because he broke his shoulder, smashed it into pieces but he could have still stood up you see and his owner mrs boucher whose first horse it was came in and uh, said how sorry she was and i don't know are you all right and i said yeah it's so you know i'm so glad the horse is okay and she said oh my god don't you know he, he's been euthanized and i started crying well jonathan for a grown man you know 1973 for crying out i was 30 years old I started crying and she picked me up by one hand, slapped my face with the other. And she said, how can I have any more horses if my jockeys break down when this happens, you know? Anyway, she was emotional, of course, as I was. And when I went home, there was a, a little letter in my pocket um, saying, I apologize for my actions. I was just so distraught, you know, when you cried and, and uh, there was a, a monetary drink, take your wife out and please, you know celebrate his life so you, you know he could have been we were going to have his breathing attended to look what they do to the Nichols horses yeah. I think Paul even does horses that aren't wrong in the breathing area when they come right so think how good he would have been we don't know hmm. well we'll leave Richard for now but still loves to look forward to in part three of this eleventh uh, episode of the Sporting Lives series, and part three, we start to dissect that uh, Pittman broadcasting career, and he's got one or two candid things to say about uh, working with the BBC. So do stick around for the release of part three. Don't forget, you can follow me on at Sporting Lives One, so you'll get updates on any new episodes or guests um, as and when they happen. Uh, also, you can follow me on Facebook on at Sporting Lives One. Get in touch on Jonathan Deutsch at hotmail.com with any comments you've got, any requests for future guests. Thank you very much once again for your support. And um, we'll be back with you then for episode 11, part three.
very soon.